Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Our text for the morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. On this Resurrection Sunday, we discover our gracious God's solution to the biggest problem that you and I will ever face in our lives. That is the problem of death. I know of no problem greater in your life or mine than death. But God has solved that problem through the Lord Jesus, His own Son, and He's done it by the incarnation, that is, by the assumption of human nature. Jesus, of course, as we've learned already in the Hebrew epistle, is God the Creator. Chapter 1 describes Him as the one who made the worlds, and He sustains the worlds by the word of His power. He's also the very radiance of the glory of God. The second divine person is co-equal, co-essential, and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person. That is, God of very God, truly God. But in this second chapter, we learn that not only is he truly God, but he assumed human nature. Listen, if you will, to verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, you and I, in the hierarchy of creation, are lower than the angelic beings. And just as man is lower than the angels, so Jesus, the God of all eternity past, was made a little lower than the angels. That is, he became like us. And why was he made lower than the angels? Verse 9 says, for the suffering of death. You see, angels do not die. And of course, God cannot die. But man is subject to death. And so that he could suffer and die, Jesus assumed our nature. This is the familiar story of the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He stooped way down to take our place. He became one of us, if you please, in every respect, sin accepted. It says that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He came to die. Jesus did not come to set up a political empire. He didn't come to make this world a better place to live. He came for the express purpose of going to the cross and laying down his life in death. And it says in our text that he took our nature. Listen to verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He also himself likewise took part of the same that for this purpose through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death Jesus Christ brought death to death. Death has died in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now I suspect that this is uncomfortable news for death is not a popular subject. Just psychologically speaking, it's unpleasant. We don't like to think about it. In my brief lifetime, I've witnessed a perplexing sociological change in which it is increasingly socially unacceptable to even talk about death in a public gathering. Even at funerals, we don't like to use the word death, do we? Even in our language, we've seen a makeover as we think about this subject. Instead of saying so-and-so died, we say today what? They've passed, they've passed on, they've passed away, and I certainly understand the reason that we do that. I even use that kind of language myself. What once was called in my childhood a cemetery is now popularly referred to as a memorial garden. And funeral is no longer called a funeral, but most of the time a celebration of life. I suspect, though, that all the flowers in the world, regardless of the kind intentions of loved ones and well-meaning friends and end-of-life caregivers, cannot blunt the brutal reality of what the Bible calls the sting of death. The Bible does not soft-pedal this topic. It does not pull its punches. The Bible does not try to gloss it over and make it something beautiful. In fact, my friends, the Bible deals with us realistically. And the fact is, if you've lost a loved one, you know that you appreciate all of the kind sentiments and the flowers and the compassion that is shown. But at the same time, there's something in the depths of your soul that feels the sting of death. And it's inescapable. But I don't sorrow as the world sorrows when I think about death. I have a precious hope that death is not the end. You see, the Bible gives me a perspective on it that the unbelievers and the secularists in this world will never truly understand. But one of the things the Bible calls upon us to do is to face death squarely in the face and to understand it is a painful, it is a harsh, it is a brutal reality. You see, God's word, like I said, doesn't soften the punch of death at all. It says that death is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Notice death is unnatural. God did not intend for man to die. Death has come into this world as a penalty for sin. Had Adam never sinned, he never would have died. He would have been immortal and all of his posterity would have been immortal. But sin has brought death into this world as a penalty Death is not natural. It's not God's will. It's not God's way. Even though it was imposed as a penalty for sin, God's intention for man was to live in perpetual fellowship with him in paradise. But sin has brought heartache and death into this world. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the Bible tells us that death is the wages of sin. It tells us that it's a war without discharge. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 8 reads as follows, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war. That is, it's inescapable. If Jesus Christ tarries, every one of us will die. 
we have a universal appointment with death. Every human being must die if Jesus tarries. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Indeed, my friends, the Bible does not soft-pedal this issue. Job calls death in Job 18.14 the king of terrors. It is a frightening thing, isn't it? And I'm sure that each one of us knows the tendency to just not want to think about it, to try to put it off until a later time. But you know, the fact is, as we get older, with each passing year, I am compelled more and more to face my own mortality. And I'm sure you can say the same. And it's a, it's a sobering kind of reality check. A few weeks ago, I was struggling with uh, some respiratory issues, asthma problems, and I started coughing during the night. I didn't want to wake up Lori. So I reached for my inhaler and got out of the bed, and apparently I started to cough and tried to hold it back, and the next thing I knew, I was hearing her voice in a kind of dreamlike state saying, are you okay, baby? And the first thing I thought was, oh, she called me baby. <laughs> and my first response to her was I dropped my inhaler and I couldn't find it. And I ended up with a couple of bruises on my elbows and on my side where I hit the bed. I just passed out for a little bit. I'll tell you, it was a rude awakening. And it made me realize that with each passing year, you know, and I hope to stay around a long time, but uh, with each passing year, it made me realize that this body's breaking down and things happen that you didn't expect. And you say, why did that happen? I used to have a coworker that said his dad liked to tell the story about an old mule that they had. He said, there's always a first time for everything. He said, this old mule one day just fell over and died. And his dad said, you know, he's never done that before. And that's right, there's a first time for everything. I'm glad to hear you chuckle because this is a serious and a sober subject. You say, Brother Mike, this is resurrection. But we can't appreciate what resurrection means unless we understand how painful death is. It's a terror. It looms over our lives. It haunts us. We realize that as the years pass, we're each and every one closer to it. And especially as we bid farewell to friends and loved ones who once sat on these pews. And we say, wouldn't it be better just to ignore it, to bury our heads in the sand, and not to face it? No, my friends, let's be realistic. And the Bible gives us a perspective that can help us to deal with such a subject as this. Now, this is the uncomfortable news. Death is not a popular subject. It's one, again, that we would just rather either forget about or gloss it over and try to dress it up with perfume and flowers. Let's look at some realistic news. The Bible teaches there are three kinds of death. In the Bible, death is always a separation. First, there's physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when the tabernacle of this body is disassembled, when this earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, the soul is in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Then the Bible speaks of spiritual death or the separation of the soul from God. Would it surprise you if I told you that every one of us was born into this world spiritually dead? 
dead in trespasses and in sin. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. The soul, the inner part of you, is separated from God by nature. And we're brought into this world not in fellowship with God. Our hearts are dead to God, dead to spiritual things, until the Lord gives them life, right? So the Bible speaks of physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. It speaks of spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And then it speaks of eternal death, or what Revelation chapter 20 calls the second death, that is, a death with finality, which has to do with the separation of the soul and the body, from God for all eternity. And when Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, these words, it is helpful to interpret them in terms of these different kinds of death. Jesus says, Whoso believeth in me, though he were dead, that is, dead physically, yet shall he live physically. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, that is, he shall never die that eternal death, that second death, you see, if you understand the different phases or aspects or kinds of death taught in the Bible, it makes verses like that understandable. Now, we've talked about some uncomfortable news. We've talked about some realistic news. Death is separation in one form or another. Let's talk about some good news. Our text this morning indicates that death, the great enemy death, has died by means of the death of Jesus Christ. For as much then as the children, that's you and me again, are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Through his death, Jesus has destroyed death, and the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This verse teaches my friends that death has died through the death of Christ. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, my beloved, he accomplished what no one else in human history could accomplish. He won the victory over sin, Satan, hell, death, and the grave. Every enemy was conquered. Every one of the foes of God's people has been vanquished on the cross of Calvary. Through the death of Jesus. In fact, 2 Timothy 1.10 puts it like this, which is now made manifest, that is the salvation that God has given to us through Christ our Lord, has now been made manifest through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now the gospel shines the light on the life that the Lord has given us. When the gospel is proclaimed, it tells us that Jesus has done what to death? Does it say that he simply wounded it seriously? No, my beloved, it says he's abolished it. Interestingly, that word abolished means he's rendered it powerless. So that it has no ultimate power over your life or mine anymore. Now when you stand at the cemetery and you bid farewell to a friend or loved one, I dare say it seems that death has all the power. But the gospel reminds us that, in fact, it has no ultimate power. It may have won a temporary victory. My friends, the war is already finished. Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus has already won the big war. 
And though death may have gotten the victory momentarily, yet I'm telling you it has no ultimate power. It will not keep or maintain its grasp of that one for resurrection day is coming when Jesus comes again. I'm glad to believe, my beloved, that Jesus has rendered death powerless. You see, by dying, the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed the devil's destructive power over death. Seizing from death's hands, as it were, in the devil's hands, the keys of hell and death, as the book of Revelation tells us. Let me read you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in the 54th verse. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, talking about our bodies that are wasting away, and now they've gone back to the dust because they are corruptible. And when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love that song we sing sometimes, Victory in Jesus? Jesus Christ, my beloved, was not the victim at the cross. Now, of course, man looked at it like that. It might have appeared that way on the surface. As the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, that he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. You see, from man's vantage point, it looks like he was beaten. He was crucified in weakness. It looks like that Jesus is the victim at Calvary. But I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, that Jesus Christ rose on the third and appointed morning from the narrow limits of Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. Samson-like, he walked away from the grave carrying the bars of death on his mighty shoulders. And he has cast them into the land of forgetfulness. Jesus Christ got up from death and he walked away from it. That's why he says this mortal must put on immortality. Then when that happens, it will be brought to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes from Hosea 13, 14 here. Death is swallowed up in victory. I've always loved that verse in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. O death, God says, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, there will be no negotiation. There will be no second guessing or rethinking or relitigating the process. Repentance. He says death is going to die. And the grave is going to be destroyed. For he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. My beloved, if that's not a promise of the resurrection, I don't know what is. I'm glad to tell you today, dear friends, that whatever your end or my end in this world may be, that's not the end of you as a person. It's not the end of your life or of my life. For God's children will live on. The resurrection guarantees that this body will come forth and be changed. It will be made immortal. It will be made incorruptible. And the reason for that is because God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've been defeated so much in my life. I've been defeated by sin. I've been defeated by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. No doubt you can say the same. But I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, Jesus Christ has won the victory. Though I've been defeated many times, the ultimate victory has already happened. And perhaps you say this morning, Brother Goins, I don't understand how that 
death is no longer an enemy. It appears to me, as I look around, that death has not been defeated. It still wreaks its havoc in our world. May I say, the best way to think about it is to think about it like this. We are living between D-Day and V-E-Day. In other words, the initial decisive assault of the cross has sealed the fate of the Axis powers <laughs> and the final and ultimate victory of the righteous, the redeemed, and the ultimate doom of the enemy has been decided already at the cross. You may know that D-Day happened on June the 6th, 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France. That was D-Day. It was an invasion that was carefully planned and successfully executed with great casualties, of course, but yet the incursion was a turning point in World War II. Now, 11 months later, victory was finally declared on May the 8th, 1945, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. D-Day sealed the doom of the enemy, but victory was finally declared 11 months later in May of 1945 on Victory Day. You see, dear friends, the cross was Deliverance Day, was D-Day for the people of God. At the cross, the outcome of the battle was already decided. The devil was destroyed by Jesus when he was crucified on Calvary's hill, Genesis 3.15, the promise was this, that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. Yes, the serpent would get a bite in on the heel of the Messiah. Jesus did, in fact, suffer. He had great agony in his death. But you know, in the process of that, while the serpent dealt some blows to Christ. Jesus dealt the death blow to the old serpent's head. He bruised the head. May I ask you, had you rather have your heel injured or your head injured? You say, neither, and I understand what you're saying. But if you had to have one or the other injured, which one would you prefer, your heel or your head? Had you rather step on a two-by-four incorrectly and turn your ankle, or had you rather the two-by-four fall and hit you in the head. I, I suggest that that could be fatal, couldn't it? But this, my friends, is just painful, but it's not fatal. You see, the serpent bruised the heel of Jesus. That speaks again of his sufferings. When his hands were nailed to the cross, the crown of thorns was upon his head, and he suffered the ignominy and the humiliation of Calvary. But you know, in the process of that suffering and that death, Jesus Christ decapitated the serpent's head. He destroyed the devil on the cross of Calvary. Let me say it like this. If you think about John 12, 31, the words of Jesus, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. These are words he spoke right before the cross. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he spake, signifying what death he should die. Jesus went to the cross, my friends. He was lifted up. That verse is not talking about being lifted up in praise, being lifted up in our esteem. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross. As verse 32 explains, this he spake signifying what death he should die. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me and the prince of this world will be cast out. The old serpent was defeated when Jesus died on the cross. First John 3, 8 
says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I dare say the devil has used death for many millennia to claim victory over mankind. It was the devil who tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to eat of the forbidden fruit. And therefore, after they ate, they died. They died spiritually in terms of their fellowship with God. And they eventually died physically. And the devil rejoiced because he's a thief, according to John 10.10, that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. When Cain slew Abel, Cain, who was of that wicked one, John tells us, you can rest assured that the devil took great delight and glee in the shedding of Abel, the righteous man's blood, by his brother. And over the years, may I say, the devil has rejoiced in death. For the book of Proverbs says, wisdom speaking, all that hate me love death. May I say, death is not the solution to life's problems. There's only one death that has ever solved life's problems. And that's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, oh, all of my problems could be solved if I just wasn't around anymore. Your death will not solve your problems, and it won't solve anybody else's problems. In fact, it would cause more problems in the lives of those that love you. The only death that's ever solved life's problems is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the devil traffics in death. He will kill. He will steal. He will destroy he can steal your mind from you so that you can't think straight or sanely anymore, he will do that through drugs or alcohol. If he can steal your family away, if he can steal your joy, if he can steal your usefulness in life. May I say, dear friends, he traffics in death. Jesus Christ has greater power than the old enemy, doesn't he? And the Bible tells us that through his death, he has destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's why he came into this world, to deal the death blow to the old devil's head. And I'm glad to tell you, he has abolished death. And he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When we hear the gospel preached today, we see that there's more to this life than just the tragic end of an otherwise promising life. But we see, dear friends, that this life has opportunities, but our real home is the next world. Isn't that right? Our permanent abiding place is heaven. This world was never intended to be your permanent home. The old spiritual says it best. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm but a stranger and a pilgrim here. Heaven is my home. And yes, my beloved, when you think and approach your daily life with that pilgrim perspective, then may I say it will help you to deal with the disappointments along the way because we're not home yet. You see, Jesus has conquered death on behalf of his people in all three of its forms. He's already vanquished the second death through the first resurrection. That is, through his gift of life in the soul, those who are partakers in the first resurrection, the second death has no power upon them. None of God's people will ever be cast into the lake of fire or banished from the presence of God forever and forever because Jesus Christ has already borne that punishment for them on the cross. Through his death, he's destroyed eternal death. Through his death, my friends, he's destroyed spiritual death. For in the lives of every one of those that he represented on the cross, the Holy Spirit will come and indwell their hearts. At some point between conception and death, they will be born again. 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. That is, if you've been a partaker of the work of regeneration, if He's given you a new heart, one day He's going to give you a new body to match that new heart. One day He will glorify your body to match your glorified soul. And then even physical death. Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, has conquered physical death. For He says in John 14, 19, Because I live, you shall live also. See, what I'm preaching this morning is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.25, that Christ was delivered for our offenses and he was raised again for our justification. The preposition for in that verse means because of. He was delivered because of our offenses and he was raised again because of our justification. The fact that he was resurrected is proof positive that the work of justification that he came to accomplish was done. The work of redemption was finished. The work of salvation, my friends, was a reality. You see, I'm preaching an actual Savior this morning. Not a hypothetical Savior, not a potential Savior. I'm preaching an actual Savior who actually saved His people on the cross. Not saved them if, or and, or but, but saved them, period. He came to save His people from their sins, and He did it. And therefore, all that He represented on the cross are saved the text this morning says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This, my friends, is the final point we'll make this morning. Because of our risen Savior and Lord, you and I do not even need to live any longer in the fear of death. Not only has he delivered us from the reign of death, the power of death, it has no more ultimate grip on your life. Though it may seem to win a temporary victory out here in the cemetery, I'm telling you that's just momentary. It's just like a night's sleep, and before long the morning will awaken. Have you ever awakened in the morning and you thought, boy, the nights get shorter and shorter? It seems like it doesn't take long to sleep anymore. You know, I used to, used to take a long time to get a good night's sleep, but it doesn't take long anymore. You know, I wake up and I say, well, it's another day, and I'm thankful. Every morning that I wake up and my feet hit the ground, I say, thank you, Lord, for a new day, because uh, I enjoy life. But may I say I realize that my life will not continue forever in this world. That this body is breaking down. My mind is breaking down. My abilities and capacities are on the decline. But I'm telling you, dear friends, I don't have to be afraid of death anymore because it says that he delivered them through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He delivers them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. May I say that's a real bondage to live in fear of death. A real bondage. You want to live like a slave to something? Then just be afraid that something's going to take your life away. Somebody says, Preacher, I'm afraid that this virus is going to take my life away, so I'm, I'm going to preserve life by not doing anything. Well, what kind of a life is that? May I ask you, dear friends, I understand. I'm not saying that we should be reckless. I'm just simply saying that we should never allow fear, and particularly the fear of dying, to keep us from living to the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian has a different perspective on this whole issue than the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever sees death as the ultimate tragedy. And especially a young person's death. They see that as the ultimate tragedy. And it does hurt. And it's almost indescribable the pain that it brings to a person's life. But I'm telling you, dear friends, Jesus Christ has already conquered death. He's walked away from the grave. And because he's done it, you and I are sure to follow. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, it calls him the firstfruits of them that slept. And the imagery of that term, firstfruits, takes us back to the Old Testament when the people would gather the first pickings of their harvest and would devote that to the Lord. And if they would do that and God accepted the firstfruits, it guaranteed the rest of the harvest. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ was the firstfruits of them that slept. He got up from the grave and walked away from it and God accepted his sacrifice. And because he lives, my beloved, the rest of the harvest is sure to follow. You shall live also, I shall live also, my life will not end when the eyes of this body close in death. And therefore, we don't have to live in fear. It struck me one day when I was reading the 116th Psalm, the contrast, and I would encourage you to read this on your own this afternoon. Psalm 116, notice the contrast between verse 3 in this Psalm and, um, and verse 15. In verse 3, the psalmist says, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Sounds like he's in a, in a bad shape, doesn't it? The sorrows of death were all around me. They compassed me, encircled me. The grief of it, the, the bereavement, the pain of it. He says, I just couldn't get away from it. It was all around me. And the pains of hell got hold upon me. The word hell in that verse means the grave. I felt the pain of what will happen to me when I'm in the grave. And he said, I found trouble and sorrow. Notice now verse 15. That's verse 3. Verse 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Something has happened between verse 3 and verse 15 in that psalm. Do you know what has happened? He's started to think about how gracious the Lord is. How merciful God is. He says, return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. He says, I believe, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. But now I say, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Do you know what's happened there? His mind has been renewed by the truth of God's word. He's heard the truth of the gospel and it's changed his whole perspective from the fear of death to this idea that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. May I say the Christian is the only person that I've ever encountered on this planet who could say things like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That sounds very strange to the world. Death is the ultimate loss so far as man is concerned. But I'm telling you, dear friends, to the Christian... It's a gain, for to be absent from the body and present with the Lord is far better, says Paul in Philippians 1.23, than to abide in the flesh. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He says, I'm willing to stay here because God is using me to help you. And may I say today, dear friend, you are needed. You are needed. It's needful for you to abide. I don't want to lose any of you. I'm so tired of bidding farewell to our loved ones who sat on these pews. And I know it's inescapable. It's inevitable. I know that ere long, each one of us will 
following that same course. But yet, dear friends, I want to tell you today that it's needful for you to abide in the flesh so far as I'm concerned. But yet, for each one of us, let's remember, it's far better for us to go home to be with the Lord in heaven. I'm not afraid this morning. And the reason I'm not afraid is because He lives. I can face tomorrow. And because He lives, all fear is gone. And because I know that He holds the future, then life is worth the living just because He lives. I started my sermon this morning talking about an English minister in 1651 named John Owen who wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I'm going to close the sermon by talking about another English minister 30 years later, in 1681, named Richard Baxter, who wrote these words for his wife to comfort her in her hour of sickness. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. I wonder if you can say this this morning, my friend. There are days when I feel like I can say it more courageously and more honestly than I can at others. But listen to it. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to welcome endless day? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom come must enter by this door. That is, you're going to go to heaven through the veil of suffering in this world. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live, but to love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. Now I read in the book of Acts about men that hazarded their lives for the name of Jesus Christ, who loved not their lives unto the death. That is, they were willing to spend and be spent for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the propagation of his gospel. May I say I've become way far too soft in this modern era Far too used to the air conditioning and the remote control and the technology and all of the comforts of life. I don't regret living in the modern world. I'm thankful for it. But I wonder if I haven't lost something along the way of this willingness to burn my eyeballs out and to spend my life in service to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He is worthy, dear friends. May God bless me to spend every day of my life truly living not trying to protect my life, but willing to live to serve Him. That's my share that His grace has given me. And whatever happens in my future, my hope is in a resurrected Savior who has caused death to die through His death on Calvary's rugged cross. I heard an old